Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome to the show, everybody. We have another in between episode where we have no guests today, but co-hosting with Jeff, and we have started getting a lot of great feedback on the podcast so far. Um, a lot of really good positive feedback, but also some con- constructive feedback as well. It seems like most of you really like the intro music, although we've gotten a few <laughs> negatives as well. As since someone was calling it, I don't know about this hip-hopity and such music you have in the beginning, but we're going to try a new uh, format today where we're going to start to answer some of the Q&A. You guys have asked a lot of questions. We're going to start to incorporate it into some of the podcasts, and I figured we would start today with with just asking some of them uh, that we've been getting. So, Jeff, welcome again, and what do you got for us today? Yeah, thanks. A question which I've seen a lot, which I think would be helpful for your listeners uh, to hear you address, involves bonds, where we're at right now. You know, we're seeing basically historic low yields. Traditionally, bonds have been a great diversifier to you know stock portfolios, but I'm curious if that still exists right now with this setup in the market. And um, frankly, with with yields so low and with you know values where they are, what does that mean for investors today? How do we approach bonds? So, for context, the U.S. is yield U.S. ten year bond, which is kind of the benchmark we're talking about, yields about one and a half one. Let's call it one point six percent. And I had a joking tweet in 2012 that I just retweeted myself the other day, which I know is bad form, but I was replying to it. But the tweet says, wake me up when the 10-year hits 0.5%. Because part of that was talking about the Japan experience over the past 20 years, where you know the Japanese bond, once it originally crossed below 2%, didn't cross back over, you know, so it, it sat there for the longest time. And now you have this really weird world where a lot of bonds are yielding even negative territory. Charlie Munger was talking about this where he said, can you go back five or 10 years? Would anyone have predicted this sort of world we live in, and especially on the short-term bonds, something like 13 foreign developed and emerging countries have negative yielding bonds. So mm-hmm. let's talk about treasuries, treasuries for a second, because treasuries play a very specific role in a portfolio. And historically, they've been a great diversifier to US stocks. So the traditional 60-40 portfolio works great because you go from one asset being stocks to two assets being stocks and bonds that are not correlated, pretty low correlation. The challenge, of course, is that correlation varies over time. Sometimes stocks and bonds are correlated. Sometimes they're not correlated at all. And you can't count on it. Correlation is something in general we always say you can't count on. And so when you have an environment like an 08, for example, almost everything went, everything went down. Bonds did go up, but almost everything went down. If you also look historically there's a great uh, JP Morgan's Guide to the Markets puts out a quarterly sort of chart book. And I don't I don't agree with a lot of the charts and conclusions they put out, but a lot of, but a number of them are are great. And one of them shows stock bond correlation, but it 
breaks it down into interest rate regime, meaning it's a scatter plot and interest rates below, I think it's 5%, what the correlation looks like and interest rates when they're above 5%, what correlation looks like. And so stocks and bonds, when interest rates are normal, kind of this zero to 4% range are not correlated. So a good diversifier, which is where we are now. Mm-hmm. But when stocks and bonds are above 5%, they're highly correlated because, and that makes sense if you think about it. So stocks and bond, so a bond for those that are listening, you know, a bond's price and yield is like a seesaw. So if yield goes down, the price of that bond goes up and vice versa. So if you have a high interest rate environment, which usually means a high inflation environment, so say yields are 7% and those yields continue to go up, which is bonds are going down, stocks don't like that. So stocks would also go down. The good news is we're in an environment where they're not correlated. However, so much of the juice has come out of bonds. It's one of the questions when people say, Meb, what keeps you up at night? And I say, not much because I sleep just fine. But if there was something, it would be that in the next crisis, perhaps bonds wouldn't be a good diversifier. What's going to happen with bonds now? I mean, with so many you know sovereign nations going into negative interest rates, I would assume that the 10 years still, you know, being flocked to right now, which could potentially, you know, continue to push them up in value. Is that an accurate assessment or are we in a bubble here? What's what's going to go on? One of the things we always say is that U.S. bonds always play a strategic role in the portfolio. And how much is is a question, but we also wrote a, p- a paper recently called Finding Yield in a 2% World, which ironically was written in January and is already dated because now we're down to a much less than 2% world. But we start out that paper with saying, do you know what the largest asset class in the world is? And most people either assume it's stocks or bonds, but many investors are surprised to know the answer is foreign debt. And that, that includes both sovereign debt as well as corporate bonds as well. But if you ask investors, how much do they have in foreign bonds? The answer is almost always zero. So Americans always have a home country bias when it comes to foreign stocks. So they put 70% of their stock allocation in the US when it should only be 50. But also when applied to bonds, they put almost nothing in foreign bonds when as a percentage of their portfolio, if you were just doing market cap weighting, means you would have about a third of your portfolio in foreign bonds. And, And most just never do. So you have this environment right now where U.S. government bonds are yielding 1.6%, which is actually pretty good compared with you know the rest of the world, where the average market cap weighted fund, which is 70%, so the same way that stock indexes are market cap weighted and you own the most of the biggest stocks, Apple, Google, Exxon, in foreign sovereign bonds, you own, it's something like 70% is five countries, US, UK, France, Germany, and Japan. That portfolio yields half of, less than half of 1%. And so a lot of reasons that people say, no, no, why would you ever invest in foreign bonds? I can invest in the US, get 1.6. So I invest in foreign, I'm getting less than half a percent. I think that's actually a very reasonable reaction. And what we talk about in this paper, however, is we say, well, Actually, there's a better approach, just like in stock valuations, there's a better approach than just market cap weighting, and that's applying a value approach to bonds, similar way that you would to, to stocks. What we did in the papers, we look back to 1900. We said, 
U.S. bonds had real returns of about 2% a year, and the median country outside the U.S. is 1.7. So for all intents and purposes, and those are real returns. We talk about the old 5-2-1 rule. Real returns of stocks around globally is around 5, bonds around 2, bills around 1. So 2%. So they're in the same ballpark as U.S. stocks. Now, some countries had much better. Denmark did 3.3% real. Congrats. In the worst... Well, there's a lot of countries where they're worse because many of them suffered hyperinflation. And there's a lot of unfortunate examples of that. We used to, back in our old talks, go pass out. Uh, you could buy hyperinflated currencies online through from Zimbabwe or Turkey or Hungary. All these examples, there's a good, we'll link to this, but a Business Insider has a good slideshow of the nine worst episodes of hyperinflation in the past hundred years. But those essentially destroy the entire value of, of those bonds. So you have this world where many European countries yield 0.5, 0, or negative. But if you include foreign developed and emerging, the average country actually yields almost 2.9%. So you're getting a much better yield globally than you would in just the US, in particular with the market cap weighting. So that's a first say. Say, all right, you could actually go get a broad-based foreign and emerging. And so, But if you then say there's a ton of research on this, some of the Triumph of the Optimist Credit Suisse updates have this, but they look at simply what a lot of FX traders or people will call carry, which is sorting a lot of these sovereign bond countries by yield. And we do it based on nominal. You could do it real as well. It doesn't really matter over time for, for the results. But if you sort countries by yield, and we went back and did this with 30 countries in 1950, and we sorted it by the top third, the middle, the bottom third, it turns out by simply sorting on yield, you end up with about two percentage points outperformance over the equal weighted and global market cap weighted benchmarks. How much political risk are you taking when you do that? People always ask this, ask this question. They say, well, aren't these countries a lot riskier? And they'll usually speak to specific examples. So when Russia was uh, going through all of their nonsense a few years ago, invading countries, shooting down planes... Well, you take a step back and say, well, you know, the U.S. has done plenty of that. We've invaded lots of countries. We've shot down commercial planes before, you know, people don't remember this or they don't talk about it. There's always geopolitical mess going on somewhere. I mean, you look at our political situation, look at political situation everywhere. There's never, it doesn't ever seem to be smooth sailing kind of anywhere in the globe, but that's what we kind of call a standard. So to protect yourself just in case, you know, this time was different to some capacity, is there a sort of minimum you know, tranche that you would want to invest in in these countries, or is it free just to sort of dive in wherever you want? So, a couple of things. So, one, historically looking at the results back to 1950, there's no meaningful pickup in volatility for investing in the highest yielders than investing in the broad-based indexes. Drawdown is a tiny bit higher, but not substantially. It's actually still low. So for sovereign bonds, you know, it's under 30%. But considering most asset classes, we're talking US stocks, foreign stocks, REITs, commodities, have had a 20% down month before, you know, bonds or sovereign bonds still tend to be fairly low vol. And on top of that, most of these countries don't just outright default. You may, I mean, the frontier, it happens a little more and it happens with countries, but when they, if they default, you still end up getting some amount on the dollar. Maybe it might be 80 cents. It might be 60. So these historical simulations take into account all of those, all of those bad market events as well. A better question is, so why don't more people pursue this? And I think you touched on it very accurately. It's that, and I'm going to read a quote here. 
And it's from a recent paper called Dissecting Investment Strategies in the Cross-Section and Time Series. Quite a mouthful. But they say this trade can be profitable because high yields are associated with non-diversifiable risk factors such as political turmoil or waiving property rights or persistently high inflation, which is the main reason I think it works, by the way, is is, uh, an inflation premium. We'll come back to that. In the extreme, the yield differential can remunerate a so-called peso effect, meaning that jump risk can be very real, even though it does not materialize. Alternatively, a high yield on a currency can reflect a central bank just about to gain or regain anti-inflation credentials that will make its currency more desirable. So if you look at a lot of historical simulations, you actually want to be investing in the highest inflation countries because what people expect is that it's going to continue indefinitely. And so historically, they end up shying away from those and you end up getting a value premium by investing in the higher inflation countries. And so that has its effects in both bonds, but also in stocks as well. What countries are we looking at right now that have high inflation? Well, in the foreign and developed markets, most don't. And that's why bond yields track inflation pretty closely. But you have the countries like Brazil, of course, uh, which... (laughs) Oh, it takes some guts right now. Brazil, yeah. uh, Brazil has decently high inflation. And then there's some that, you know, it varies almost by the month. You know, Venezuela is a really sad example. Granted, that's not an emerging or foreign developed country, but where almost like an entire system is shutting down. Now, that's a whole different podcast topic where the, you're talking about capitalism, socialism, and everything else and the reasons for that. But it's, it's, it's really sad to see. Okay, so uh, an added benefit is that foreign bonds have a pretty low correlation to U.S.-focused stocks and bonds. U.S. stocks and foreign stocks still have a fairly decent correlation and, and more so during globalization, but, but bonds seem to have, at least for now, less of a correlation with U.S. securities, which is good news. If you think about this portfolio, though, again, a, a lot of the reason that makes it tough is you look at it and you own Brazil and Russia, India, Turkey, Mexico. But the funny thing is, if, it, it looks like an emerging market bond fund now. And that's not always the case, though. So the higher yielders are not always emerging markets, just like the cheapest value in the cheapest equity markets right now. If you look at the indexes, it is emerging markets, but a lot of the countries are developed markets right now. However, so if you go pull up a Vanguard ticker for an emerging market bond fund, if you think the names are scary that I just mentioned, you can pick up, uh, go type in any of these, not even Vanguard, but other ones, they'll own Argentina, Kazakhstan, Venezuela, Ukraine, Iraq, and on and on. Now, they, they don't own that much, usually, because it's market cap weighted, but they still own them. But so here's, here's a little perspective. So the current yield right now for the top third of global sovereign bonds is around 7%. Relative to this, you know, one and a half yield you get in the US, this 0.5 on down market cap weighted, you're getting a pretty high yield. So there's a lot of buffer zone for that relative to a normal portfolio. Over time, that spread has historically been around two and a half percentage points. It's been as low as one and as high as six and a half. So right now, what is that? Seven over a global of let's call it 2.9 or three. So it's around four. So it's on the higher end. But the cool thing is emerging market bonds have transformed from having much worse credit situation to now investment grade. So you've had this improvement in credit situation for many of these countries, but still the, the yield tends to be pretty high. So we think it's a pretty good time for it, you know, maybe a little biased because we, we run a fund based on it, but I uh, think that, that 
investing, at least moving away from the U.S. and tilting towards yield can be a really, uh, really smart play right now. Okay, so just trying to sort of uh, put context around this. You know, as you know, you know, my background, I come from the investment newsletter world where I saw a lot of retail mom and pop investors who were in or nearing retirement who were not just looking to preserve their wealth, but needed some active cash flow generation. And to some degree, bonds were a part of that. And, you know, over the last few years, as yields have continued dropping lower, that's made things very, very difficult for them to meet their needs. So are you now basically saying that you believe it's safe and it's appropriate to look globally and to go to these emerging market bonds as a proxy for what used to be your U.S. allocation? There's a lot in that question. So the first part is it's a tougher environment for people looking for yield. You know, we talked before in previous podcasts where we said U.S. stocks, we expect them to return, what, maybe 4% in the next 10 years, 5% if we're lucky. Not negative, and, but not the historical 10% or so people, people expect. Bonds, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get one and a half. And so you can't put together five and one and a half and get to this historical 8% yield that people or return that people expect. The good news is we think most of the foreign assets are cheaper. So adding, you know, foreign stocks, adding particularly emerging markets we like, uh, adding commodities and having a balanced portfolio, we think is going to have a much better performance. And it's showing this year uh, that balanced portfolio, almost any global asset allocation, as long as you include foreign and real assets, having a wonderful yield. I mean, look at gold, look at a lot of commodities are finally perking up after having a horrible last few years. So having a globally diversified portfolio is much better. And then you can start to do the tilts, tilt towards value, tilt towards momentum and use trend. Um, there's, a, there's a great quote on this. I was actually going to use it on a different podcast, but now I just, I remembered it. So this is from the book Reminiscences of a Stock Operator, one of the all-time classic, great investment books. Have you read it? I'm not. Shame on you. Um, <laughs> it, it should be required reading for everybody at our firm. Well, the most recent edition or recently edition, there is a foreword or maybe it's an afterward, I can't remember, uh, from Paul Tudor Jones, who we mentioned in a prior podcast, famous macro trader. But it's there's like a 100 gem quotes in there. But one of them was, he goes, there are two rules from this book by which I now live during these later stages of my constitution. First is the tenet, the trend is your friend, which is repeated often, but not often enough. You will simply never make any money unless you begin and end every trading thought with that in mind. That's a pretty powerful statement, first of all. Second, he goes, second is the old adage actually popularized in the 1880s, as I learned in the annotations, sell down to the sleeping point. And we say this to a lot of people. I often say I'm asset class agnostic. I don't care what you do with your money. You want to put it in CDs. You want to put it in whatever you want. Have an appreciation for what's happened historically and if you're not comfortable, a lot of the automated solutions will put you into a very heavy equity portfolio, particularly if you're younger. Say, hey, you have 50 years, no sweat. Just close your eyes and buy and hold without realizing that most people can't sit through the 50 to 80% losses. Mm -hmm. And the challenge, of course, is that until you live through it, you can't really appreciate what that number means on paper. And he actually has a little more on his quote. He says, probably the best lessons to be learned from this book come from his repeated failures and how he dealt with them. He's talking about Lefevre. In the book, I think he lost his entire fortune four or five times. I did the same thing, but was fortunate enough to do it all in my early 20s on very small stakes of capital. 
I think it's no great coincidence that our greatest champions, our greatest artists, our greatest leaders, our greatest everything, all seem to have experienced some kind of gut-wrenching loss. Uh, we talked earlier and we had in a prior podcast about how I lost all my money on an on a option trade early in my life, which certainly colored my future investing perspective. And one of the reasons I became a quant and wanted to quantify everything is say, you know, I don't want this to happen again. And so a lot of people, until they live through a big bear market or in whatever they're investing in, it's really hard to, to quantify that. But so to going back to bringing this back to the foreign bonds is that if you're talking to a client or an investor and you have an investment approach where you're trying to diversify, because most advisors that are talking to clients right now and they say, Hey, yeah, for the last four years, every year they have had a conversation where, why do I own these emerging market stocks? Why do I own these commodities? And they've had you know, say, look, it's part of the allocation. These all kind of go in and out of favor over time. And you just kind of have to stick with it. That's a tough conversation, particularly when U.S. stocks and bonds are ripping as they have been for the past nine years. But every investment asset, every investment strategy goes in and out of favor. There's a great quote from, I'm going to murder his name, Jean-Marie et- Eviard, Eliard, First Eagle Funds. I, I apologize, Jean-Marie. But he says, <laughs> classic value investor. But he says, in 1997, clients were upset. In 98, they were mad. In 99, they were all gone. I lost seven out of 10 clients. GMO, uh, Grantham and GMO says a lot of same things. Of course, they both outperform massively in the, in the following years being value investors. So if you go and tell your clients and investors that you're planning on investing in Greek and Russian debt, that's probably the wrong way to frame this. But if you were to go and say, hey, look, we're going to apply a value approach to the largest asset class in the world, most people would not agree and say, okay, that makes some sense. Particularly if you said, would you rather hold a diversified portfolio of 15 countries yielding 7% or a market cap weighted portfolio yielding half of 1%? You know, that seems to me like it'd be, and it doesn't mean you have to go put half your portfolio in foreign bonds, but it means that it's, I think it's part of a reasonable allocation. Is there a a specific smell test that um, listeners can apply if they're looking at potential markets to go into? Is there anything that you would say it's a red flag, stay away, or is it just, no, diversify, put it into a basket, and you're good to go? I I think the latter is correct. Diversification, you never just want to go buy Greek debt and walk away, although that was one of the best trades in the macro world a few years ago. You want to buy a basket. Same as with anything. You're never just going to go out and buy one stock and, and go away. But you want to do it by all the traditional metrics, exchange traded, probably keep it to foreign developed and emerging, and pay as little as fees as possible. So just very just basic solid advice that uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. No, I'll tell you a question I always get on this is they say, well, what about what about currencies? Do you hedge the currencies or not? You know, so we said with foreign stocks, we're agnostic. You either pick that you hedge or you don't, but you have to stick with it. And so in general, we always say just don't hedge it. You'll get some diversification benefit of owning the foreign currencies. It doesn't really matter with stocks. With foreign bonds, if you stick to the developed market foreign bonds, then we think it makes sense to hedge because you're adding volatility to an asset class that doesn't really have it. So these bonds from the US, you know, Japan, France, Germany, et cetera, they're not that volatile, the sovereigns. So it does, and, and it doesn't cost much to hedge, but the cost of hedging emerging market debt, which tends to be more volatile, has a much higher yield, and we don't think it makes as much sense. But again, in general, I'm still somewhat agnostic. There's things I have very strong opinions about. There's things I have very 
minor opinions on. I'd put this in the minor category. I don't care either way, but but the problem will, of course, be most people won't stick with it. If you look at the flows into, for example, Wisdom Tree's yen hedged fund, you know, they probably happen at the worst times. People see this massive dollar bull or bear market and flip around just like they do with any asset class. So currencies tend to be somewhat of a... Now, we also think that currencies as an asset class, you can absolutely apply rules to. But again, that's probably probably another podcast uh, discussion. Okay. Well, bringing this back to U.S. bonds, I'm just curious your take. Are you now actively lightening your allocation there? Are you nervous or are you letting it ride? Or what are your thoughts? If you're a strategic asset allocator, you come up with the allocation and then that's that. So you look historically, you say, this is how much I want in the U.S., this is how much appropriate, and you don't really want to muck around with that. And so we don't have any strategies necessarily that are going in and having subjective opinions on bonds or, or whatnot. You can look at, and we'll post this to the show notes, you can look at periods, for example, when bonds have had really large drawdowns. And we did this on the blog years ago, where we said, look, historically, the 30-year hasn't declined this much in the past, hasn't had these drawdowns this big. And historically, the next 3, 6, 12 months is usually a great time to be owning bonds. No one wants to because they're down 30% or whatever. And on the flip side, I imagine it's also true. I don't have the stats in front of me, but we've had this massive run in the 30 year in zeros in bonds in general and bond like utility stocks are just crushing it this year, uh, which I imagine is something I'd want to run away from. So, so on a just cocktail chatter, yes, it's probably take a step back. Those probably aren't going to be the best performing assets, but I don't know if you look at the momentum and trend systems, they're very heavy in bonds, but that makes sense. That's where the momentum is. They've been crushing it. Those are starting to rotate into, they've, they've held real estate a lot as well, that you're starting to see some rotation into emerging markets and commodities as well. So are we going to get an inflation pickup or are those investments really, uh, they've owned precious metals for a while, momentum strategies. Are those going to continue or not? Who knows? When you, when you conflict on trend versus momentum, which one do you give the edge to? Excuse me, value and momentum. Yeah, I've always had to say my Desert Island strategy is trend following. So if I had to just take a step back, that fits my personality. A lot of people, you know, their personality is value. The more something goes down, the more excited they get. That's kind of painful for me. It's painful for me to own something and just watch it continuing to go down and down and not do anything. So trend following will always be my base case. And I published my portfolio. I can't mention on the podcast, but if you Google something like Meb's 2016 portfolio, you'll see exactly what I own. And it's a very heavy momentum influence, but it's also a very heavy value influence because I know it works, but I do it systematically. So I'm not in there trying trying to pick out what works the best. By the way, this was an incredibly long one Q&A question. We're going to have to start either <laughs> limiting the time we spend on these Q&As or just start asking one per episode. Do we have any more we want to ask today? or do we, It's probably long enough already. Are we going to wrap it up? Yeah, I think we should wrap it up. So we end every episode with things I find beautiful, useful, downright magical. I, I'm getting to the point where we're going to stop asking Jeff because his seemed to be getting weirder and weirder. He was talking about... Let's see, was it fake email websites and group video chat? It's just well, it's you amazing, got anything else weird this time stuff. too, or what? Yeah. What do you what do you got for us this time? Um, Uncrate.com. It's a uh, cool website that's kind of oriented towards guys. It's got uh, gear and cars and tech and cool stuff. It basically profiles a lot of really uh, cool, fun stuff. I'm familiar uh, with that one. They've had uh, they often have classic cars, and you know my love of 
my first car was a 1983 brown Toyota Land Cruiser wagon. And I've always had a fascination with old Land Cruisers. So they, they, they put a bunch of cruisers on there. And it's actually really sad because did you know, by the way, that Japan came out with an, a 50th anniversary edition Land Cruiser? So with all new components, but with a classic body style, only for sale in Japan. And I don't think you can import, readers correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you can import a car not for sale in the U.S. because it hasn't passed the safety standards. Didn't but I've, I've never been as sad as, as the day that I learned that they were putting out a new one, but you couldn't import it. So if I'm wrong, <laughs> readers, contact me. All right, uh, I'm familiar with that site, so um, you're off the hook. So mine is something a little different, and mine is a piece of art that I bought maybe a year or two ago that I could stare at all day. It's like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I am going to murder this guy's name. It's Japanese. So Takeo, T-A-K-A-O, I-N-O-U-E, Inui? Any guesses? Takeo Inui. He has this sculpture. We'll put a picture on the show notes. That is a dandelion encased in plastic acrylic. So it just looks like this dandelion hover, hovering in you know, midair. It's the most beautiful thing I think I've ever seen. It's for sale on a couple Japanese websites. It's not cheap. It's like 200 bucks. And there's a bunch of variations of it. Anyway, check it out. Uh, if you have a wife, husband, girlfriend, coworker, advisor, client that you particularly like, it would probably be... a Really cool gift. I think it's on the website somewhere, Tokyo. But anyway, we'll add it to the show notes. That was a different one just to mix it up. Okay. Well, again, uh, everyone, friends, thanks for taking the time to listen today. We always welcome feedback and questions for the mailbag. We'll keep it shorter next time, I promise, or ask sort of a shotgun approach with a lot more at feedback at themebfabershow.com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Please do. And if you're enjoying the podcast, love it, hate it, whatever, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.